Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. The revolution, um, as we well know, was not just a conflict fought by people in uniform. Uh, there were ordinary citizens um, performing a variety of roles that all risk um, the, the utmost in order to um, provide uh, independence for, for the country. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Charlie Dewey talking about the life of spy Abraham Banker. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is brought to you by the Camden Archives and Museum, now featuring the interactive exhibit, Turning Points, The Battles of Camden, 1780 and 1781. For more information, visit classicallycarolina.com. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is friend of the show and Journal of the American Revolution contributor Charlie Dewey talking about the amazing life of Abraham Banker, a spy living in and around New York City during the American Revolution. Banker's life is one that is nondescript for a lot of it until he joins this amazing spy network. His journeys will take him uh, to some uh, pretty dangerous situations, and put him in regular contact with some of the heaviest hitters of the American Revolution, George Washington included. Charlie Dewey's article shows us exactly what these men laid on the line when they put themselves at risk to serve their country. New York was a tough place during the American Revolution. It was occupied by the British. It was the heart of their war effort. Uh, in a geographic sense, in a lot of ways. And events do matter. I mean, you know, turning points occur. When Benedict Arnold uh, famously switches sides to the British, uh, he brings with him a load of intelligence, including the names of those working behind the scenes in secret to aid the American cause. It's a really fascinating story. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Charlie Dewey. Charlie Dewey, welcome back. Yeah, uh, thanks for having me. It's uh, it's great to be back on the show. Tell us about your background. Uh, so I am a historical interpreter at uh, at Fort Lee Historic Park, um, and I am also an officer in the New York Army National Guard, um, and my uh, my MOS is uh, intelligence. Um, I've been doing uh, both for just about three years. Um, and before that, I studied military history at, uh, at the Virginia Military Institute. What first drew your interest into this topic? Um, well, most of my, uh, my research relates to northern New Jersey um, and, and the Hudson Valley in general. And I'm particularly interested uh, in intelligence operations for, for obvious reasons. Um, but one of my, my favorite things to do, one of my favorite ways to research um, is to read George Washington's um, his correspondence on the Founders Online database um, and the digitized collections in the Library of Congress, which 
if you can read 18th century handwriting is a, is a great resource. And I, I recommend it to, to everyone. If you're, you're looking to get into um, some revolutionary war research uh, and you can read letters from people like Benjamin Talmadge, Charles Scott, um, Caleb Brewster, Abraham Woodhull, uh, and the rest of the Culpering. Um, but you can also read letters from the Mercer brothers and, and several others involved in, uh, in spying around New York city. Uh, and in reading these letters, you come across a couple of aliases. Uh, for example, Woodhull's name, Samuel Culper Jr., comes up quite a bit. Um, but in the summer uh, of 1780, the name Amicus Republica uh, begins to appear quite frequently, and, and that really interested me. You know, here was someone who wasn't picking a, uh, a random name to hide his identity. Uh, instead, he used a Latin name, uh, which roughly translates to uh, Friend of the Republic. Um, luckily, I didn't have to dig too far uh, to find out his identity because he wrote to Washington uh, nine years later or so to apply for a federal appointment um, in the new government, and he revealed his name as Abraham Banker. Tell us a bit about the early life of Abraham Banker. Um, so there's there's not a whole lot uh, about his life um, before the, the war started. Uh, we know that he was born in 1760. And by all accounts, he spent the majority of his life in, uh, in New York City and on Staten Island, where he was born and raised. Uh, in some accounts, um, he's listed as having attended King's College, which is, which is now Columbia University. Um, but I don't believe this to be true. Uh, he actually had a cousin with the same exact name, um, except his cousin's middle name was uh, Bolin. And he's generally referred to as Abraham B. Banker. Uh, it was this Abraham that I believe attended King's College, while the Abraham Banker um, of our discussion attended uh, the College of New Jersey, which is now which is now Princeton, uh, in 1774. And it's very likely that he stayed there until November of 1776, when the the college dismissed its students as the British Army pursued uh, the Continental Army across New Jersey after the fall of uh, Forts Washington and um, and Lee. Uh, earlier that month. Uh, Banker returned to, to Staten Island and eventually he took a position as a clerk in a merchant house um, in New York City. And from his correspondence, it's, um, it's pretty clear that Banker was able to travel to and from um, the city to Staten Island um, with relative ease. And it's important to remember at this point that he was behind British lines, uh, which would eventually be um, his most valuable asset in providing intelligence to Washington. In your article, you explain this connection pretty thoroughly. How did Banker connect to the Mercero ring? Yeah. Um, so the, the first, uh, first thing is I, I should give a quick background on the Mercero ring. Uh, they, uh, along with the Culper ring, were one of the most prominent uh, spy rings of the war and, and one of the two um, in the New York City area during the course of the war. Um, it consisted of Joshua and John Mercero uh, and Joshua's sons named uh, Joshua and John the Grange. So as you can see, there's a lot of double names throughout the whole story of Abraham Banker. Um, but they, they didn't use invisible ink or ciphers uh, like the Culper ring did, uh, but they did have some really interesting ways of transporting and um, delivering reports to and from Staten Island uh, what they would do is uh, they'd often tow bottles uh, with messages in them underwater behind their rowboats 
um, that they could quickly release if their their craft came under duress um, by by British ships. Um, and they also utilized dead drops, uh, which is the process of leaving a, a written message under a rock or in a hollowed out tree for someone to collect. Uh, and this would uh, later be used by the culpering as well. Um, when a message was collected, the recipient would flash a light to the opposite shore, uh, either on Staten Island or New Jersey, to let them know that the message was received. Um, so this tradecraft was was pretty good for the time. It was uh, they were pretty much trying new things at this point um, and seeing what worked, uh, but it wasn't as sophisticated as it would be eventually become under the Culpers. Uh, they, they first supplied uh, Washington with reports as early as as 1776 during um, the New York campaign. Um, but after the, recruit, the retreat across uh, New Jersey, um, the ring fell silent with the exception of John LaGrange, who stayed in New Brunswick um, to collect intelligence for Washington. Uh, 18 months later, um, after you know quite a bit of intelligence collection, he had drawn some attention to himself uh, and he was forced to, to relocate um, north to to Rutland in what is now Vermont, uh, and he served as the deputy commissary of prisoners um, for, for some time after that. Uh, and it wasn't until 1780 that Washington again requested the services of the Mercereau ring, um, but the only one left in the area was, was John Mercereau, um, John LaGrange's uncle, uh, Joshua Mercereau's brother. Uh, and he wanted him to establish a correspondence uh, concerning British activity on Staten Island and the New York City area. Uh, Mercero told Washington that he knew someone that was good for the task, uh, someone who could travel in and out of the city. And less than one later, the first um, Amicus Republica letter appears in Washington's correspondence. Uh, and it's unknown how the families knew each other, um, but as they were both prominent members of the community on, on Staten Island, um, it's possible that they had known each other for years, but we're, we'll probably never know. Um, over the course of the spring and the summer, Banker continued to write using this alias, and he provided not just tactical intelligence, but um, strategic and operational level intel uh, that certainly would have uh, helped Washington's decision making. And it's important uh, to mention it, it. Banker was not the only spy uh, that helped John Mercereau, uh, but his letters do appear with more frequency um, than, than the other spies uh, in the network. And they contain far more detail um, and they're more descriptive and uh, just more accurate than anything Mercereau himself wrote to, to Washington. What was life like for a secret agent? during the American Revolution? Well, um, I can't imagine it was a very comfortable life uh, at all. Um, one doesn't need to look any further than uh, someone like Nathan Hale, uh, who was executed by the British um, in 1776, uh, to understand the consequences of what would happen if you were caught. Um, but even less extreme examples could paint a, a pretty descriptive picture of what life was like. Uh, you look at the correspondence of the Culper Ring, for example, um, and at several times they refused to operate because of, um, because of the danger that they sensed, and they often needed to be coaxed back into um, delivering reports, either by Talmadge or uh, by Washington. Um, a courier for the Mercer Ring uh, named John Parker 
uh, who uh, was Joshua Mercero's apprentice, actually um, was captured near New Brunswick and starved to death in a New York City prison. So this all had to be at the forefront of their minds, anyone that chose to undertake these activities. Um, the last time I was on the podcast, we, we discussed Caleb Bruin, um, who was a spy who also suffered uh, a near-death experience um, on more than one occasion uh, in New York City prison. So needless to say, it was a high-risk activity, uh, and all the tradecraft that they had um, you know, sometimes even failed to keep them safe. So on a daily basis, they had to pass themselves off as someone they weren't, um, and the margin for error was um, you know, evidently razor thin. Um, Banker's correspondence on his own personal safety while spying is, is interesting to me. Uh, in 1780, in, in June, he wrote to John Mercero that a member of the ring had uh, recently been imprisoned. He writes that uh, the fear of being detected restrains us from being as serviceable as we'd wish. Um, and several months later, in, in the end, it was a fear of being detected that eventually ended Banker's service as a spy during the war. Baker often wrote to George Washington. What did he say to the commander in chief? Um, I think they're they're uh, they're pretty interesting. Um, a series of letters, most of them um, written as Amicus Republica, were passed to Washington through John Mercero, uh, but some are listed in the correspondence as uh, being received by Washington himself. Um, and his letters, um, as I said before, contain a mix of intelligence uh, pertaining to all three levels of warfare, uh, the tactical, the operational, and strategic. Um, and I think this is Im important because it also illustrates Washington's evolution as an intelligence consumer um, throughout the war. Um, at first, uh, it was mainly military intelligence that, that he wanted. It was um, the location of uh, troops. It was the quantity of supplies that they had. It was um, the, the number of, uh, of fortifications and the location of um, uh, these forts. And uh, by the war's end, he was requesting and receiving information from his agents uh, that had a wider implications for the war. Um, during the summer of 1780, for example, the British command in the city anticipated that a French fleet would arrive to blockade New York Harbor. Um, and Banker reported on uh, how nervously uh, they anticipated this um, and even uh, wrote that they wanted Sir Henry Clinton, who was in Charleston um, besieging the city at the time, to return to New York uh, in order to aid in its defense. Um, but he also wrote to Washington that they planned to sink as many as 27 ships uh, off the coast of New Jersey near Sandy Hook uh, in order to obstruct the fleet. Um, Washington was also greatly concerned about the French fleet. Uh, he didn't know um, its, its arrival time as well. Um, and at the time he was requesting this information, the culpering wasn't operating, uh, which made bankers reporting all the more crucial. Um, the, the fleet never uh, never arrived off the coast of uh, New York as they anticipated, but nevertheless, um, it was uh, you know it is a testament to Banker's ability that he was able to find out um, information as as soon as he did. Um, that June, he also wrote about two threats um, to northern New Jersey. Uh, the first of which was a a planned British expedition against what Banker believed to be. Um, Hackensack, New Jersey, but it actually 
uh, resulted in what we know today as the Battle of Connecticut Farms, in which uh, the New Jersey militia uh, stopped uh, the advancing Crown forces under General Wilhelm von uh, Knipphausen um, as they advanced on the Continental Army um, encampment at Morristown. Uh, and the other was a plan to depreciate the continental currency by introducing counterfeit dollars um, into the local economy. It was not the, the first time that the, the British tried to do this, and it actually wouldn't be the last either. Um, but catching the plot as early as possible was um, critical in Washington's mind in order to keep people's faith in the, the Continental Congress intact. Um, but in my opinion, the most interesting thing that Banker relayed to Washington uh, was a letter about a possible traitor um, in the Continental Army. When Sir Henry Clinton returned from Charleston that summer, he actually took up residence in the Banker family home um, on Staten Island. Um, Banker wrote in late June that uh, you know, after listening into the conversations, uh, presumably um, within, his, within his home, um, that the British desired West Point as um, a key to the eastern states, as he writes, and once they have control of it, they could prevent all supplies from reaching Washington's army. They ridicule the opposition you are making to impede their progress, as they seem confident of that the depreciation of your currency and the ill success that has attended your arms will give a final stroke to American politics. You must be very cautious whom you trust, for you have internal enemies whom you consider as real friends. Now, I think this is uh, overall just a pretty remarkable, um, uh, remarkable quote. And but the follow-up is is pretty lacking. Um, we don't know who he was talking about. Um, it is possible that he was talking about Ethan Allen, who was in the middle of what uh, became known as the Haldimand affair. Um, Banker mentions Allen uh, in by name in letters uh, that July, and Washington seemed relatively interested in, in hearing more about it. Um, for background, the Haldeman affair was um, Allen's idea to give uh, Vermont or establish Vermont as a British colony in response to Congress's refusal to grant it statehood. Um, but I think it's, it's more fun uh, to believe, and I, I can't say it for certain, um, but Banker, I believe that Banker was talking about Benedict Arnold, um, as he was the only one of Washington's generals at this point who provided the British with, um, with details on how West Point could be attacked. Uh, he had, uh, you know, um, the year prior has, was actually when he started his, his correspondence. Um, Arnold established his, uh, his correspondence with, um, with the British. Uh, but if Banker was really talking about Arnold, uh, he never mentions him by name, and he doesn't mention him in any other letters. Uh, but June of 1780 would have been the perfect time for um, Henry Clinton to be briefed on Arnold's correspondence uh, as he had just been away in Charleston. Um, so this would have been uh, as soon as he returns, he would he'd be receiving word about um, how his defector to be um, what he was offering. In any case, uh, Washington still made Arnold the commander of West Point in, uh, um, in early August of that year. And we, we know the rest of the story. Um, but neither Allen nor Arnold get any attention in the letter of um, any of Washington's other spies in the summer of 1780. So the fact that Banker was able to attain this sort of information is, again, another testament to, um, to his ability. What was Banker's greatest contribution while spying? I wouldn't say um, 
any particular or uh, event or report was his greatest contribution. Um, I think that while that he chose to spy, uh, fully understanding the consequences that his actions could bring. And he did so when other spies uh, and other networks um, could not or would not deliver um, is his greatest contribution. You know, it, it's one thing to walk around your neighborhood and observe fortifications and troop movements. Uh, I'm not saying it's not dangerous uh, when they did that. There were many people that suffered a great deal um, just by putting those sort of things on paper and transmitting it to, to Washington. Um, but it's, it's something else entirely to place yourself in a situation uh, when you can hear the conversations of generals um, and they, they might hold the, the key to your, um, your fate in their hands if they were to give it up. Um, but basically by being someone who Washington and even Mercero could rely upon for every type of intelligence um, should not be understated, in my opinion. How did Benedict Arnold's defection to the British upend New York's spy network? Yeah, um, so Arnold's defection was actually uh, what caused Banker to, to end his service um, as a spy. Uh, as a general um, in the high command of the Continental Army and someone that Washington trusted right up until uh, his betrayal, uh, many spies uh, believed that Arnold might have known their identities. Uh, indeed, this, this was a fear um, across the Continental Army uh, at this time. Um, John Mercer wrote years later that many persons were apprehended and put in the provost, um, and that fearing the same fate, Banker made his escape from New York to Staten Island, uh, and they waited to find out if he was on a blacklist. Um, fortunately, he was not. Um, Arnold didn't reveal his uh, identity at all, but these events did scare him enough where he, he remained on Staten Island um, for the remainder of the war. Um, like I mentioned, uh, his best asset was his ability to travel in and out of New York City. And without it, uh, his utility as a spy was greatly decreased. And, you know, evidently, um, you know, his, his fear for, for his life um, at that point um, was too much for him to overcome. What happened to Banker after the war? It's a pretty impressive story. So his move back to Staten Island uh, apparently wasn't very suspicious to local authorities. It was still... Uh, British lines at, at this point. Um, and in 1781, he became his county's clerk. Uh, in 1784, he became the county sheriff. And uh, he later became a member of the New York State Assembly. And he served uh, in that role from 1788 to 1790. Um, but I think that actually the most important thing that he did in his career, um, he actually served as his county's delegate at uh, the, the New York Convention to ratify um, the newly written constitution for the United States. Uh, the debates over this um, need no mention. They, they were very intense and had the potential to tear the, the, the country apart at, at some say it's, you know, it's most fragile moment. Um, and Washington pled with his delegates in every state uh, to vote in favor of ratification. And, and that is exactly what Banker did. Um, and the final vote tally in New York was slim. It was 30 to, to 27. So, so one can only imagine um, without those three votes, um, what kind of uh, chaos might have ensued uh, or what kind of concessions would have been made in order to get uh, ratification approved. Um, oddly enough, the, who I mentioned before, his cousin Abraham B. Banker was actually the ratifying convention secretary. So again, like the, the family 
was all over um, New York's early history. Um, and a year later, he this is when he wrote to Washington to request his federal appointment uh, in the new government. Um, it was in this letter that he revealed his identity, and um, he reminded Washington of the great sacrifices that he'd made, uh, despite letters of support from the Merce Rose and several others um, that he had uh, collected intelligence for and with. Um, he didn't receive a position in the federal government. It, it may have been because um, Washington had already filled these positions or um, as some say, uh, some lines of thinking that um, he didn't value his spies once their utility to him were, were used up. Uh, I guess we'll never quite know the answer to it. But uh, he became his county surrogate um, in 1792 and he kept that position for, uh, for 17 years until 1809. And he died uh, in 1832 at the age of 72. How does this story help us understand the American Revolutionary Era better? Uh, well, there's one quote um, from his, uh, his, uh, his application for federal appointment that really jumps out at me, and it kind of sticks with me. Um, Banker wrote, I was not permitted from situation and circumstances to draw the sword in, in his country's defense, he means, uh, and the voice of reason and the impulse of duty pointed out to me this as the only method within my power of being at all serviceable. The revolution, um, as we well know, was not just a conflict fought by people in uniform. Uh, there were ordinary citizens um, performing a variety of roles that all risked um, the, the utmost in order to um, provide uh, independence for, for the country. Um, so if there's one thing that I think that um, I'd like people to take away from uh, Banker's story is that there, there were roles for, for everyone um, in the, the founding of the, the, the country. And it's important to look uh, in between the, the lines, um, as you could say, and outside the uniforms um, to find uh, the contributions of these ordinary, um, but in, in the end, I guess, extraordinary humans. Charlie Dewey, thanks again. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.